Each and every one of our co-hosts and participants bring valuable life experience, articulative ability, and a passion for representing the needs and views of youth across the state and beyond. We are the Gen Zero Podcast, forging tomorrow's leaders today. Tune in for new episodes every Friday at 12 p.m. Follow us on every social media platform at Gen Zero Podcast and check out our website, thegenzeropodcast.com. Welcome back to the Gen Zero Podcast. I'm your teenage Gen Z main host, Sophia Munif, and I'm joined today by guest host, Kyla. Uh, Kyla, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Kyla, and I'm 15, and I'm excited to work with this podcast. Thank you, Kyla. We are excited to have you as well, and our guest interviewee for today is Chief Daniel Hahn. Mr. Hahn was born and raised in Oak Park, Sacramento. He was hired by the Sacramento Police Department in 1987, and after around three decades of service, Chief Hahn became SPD's Chief of Police in 2017, and he is the first African-American to do so. Chief Hahn holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from the California State University, Sacramento, and a master of public administration from National University. He's a proud father of two daughters and a dedicated husband to his wife, Mrs. Katrina Hahn. He has been praised for his proactive and sensible approach to different situations and was interviewed recently by teams at Impact SAC. As an endorser or sponsor of this podcast, he is patently, and we can all agree, one of the youth's strongest supporters. Mr. Hahn, how are you doing today? I'm doing very good. Thank you. Of course. So, Mr. Hahn, as chief of police, that is quite an achievement. You've been in this career for around 30 years, right? Yes. How did you get started? Tell us your story. We want to know more about Chief Han. Yeah, so uh, this last um, September, last month, was, uh, was 33 years. So I started when I was 19. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, I grew up in Oak Park. I was arrested for assault on officer when I was 16. I witnessed a murder where a guy got shot multiple times in front of my house when I was about 9 or 10. My younger brother was murdered in downtown Sacramento after getting involved in uh, the drug trade. And growing up, I never once even thought about being a police officer as um, police officers weren't super popular in my neighborhood. And we didn't know any police officers. Uh, none of my friends had relatives that were police officers. Nobody in my family is a police officer. So it just, it wasn't something that any of us ever thought about. And um, so I actually got started basically by accident when I was 18 years old and going to Sacramento City College after high school. Um, I had took an elective, taken an elective class in criminal justice um, and recruiters came by. I handed the application back to them several times saying I didn't want to be uh, in law enforcement. Um, but eventually I took it and I took some of the tests. Um, and the reason I kept going was because uh, at the time I was working at Florin Mall at a men's clothing store and uh, going to the academy paid $5 an hour more than I was making in Florin Mall. So uh, I thought I was going to be rich, so I joined. I, I kept taking the tests, and I got accepted and went to the academy. But my whole goal was once I graduated from college, I was going to quit the police department and start my own business and become a school teacher because my degree is in business administration. Um, but about eight years into being a police officer, um, I started working up in Strawberry Manor as a neighborhood police officer, and then I taught at Grant High School for three years. 
And after those experiences, I finally realized I could do the things that I like to do uh, as a police officer. So now, 33 years later, I'm the police chief in something that I never even thought of doing and did not want to do growing up. Uh, tell us about your family. You mentioned the tragic passing of a younger sibling. Uh, how was that? Yeah, that was uh, that was probably the worst moment in my career. I was actually a police officer uh, when that happened in 1992. It actually happened on my mom's birthday, unfortunately. And um, it was actually in my district where I was working. And so I heard the call come out. And I went over there and I actually identified my younger brother as he lay on the floor of his house. And so uh, I have kind of an interesting family. I was adopted at birth uh, or given up for adoption at birth. And my mom and dad adopted me at three months old. And um, unfortunately, my dad died when I was five. So my mom basically raised us. She remarried. um, And that's where my younger brother came in when my mom remarried when I was about nine years old. Um, and then my stepdad died when I was 16. And then obviously my younger brother, uh, was killed, uh, when I was in my twenties as a police officer. So unfortunately that night, I'm the one that identified him at 19th and G downtown at his house, and then had to go to the phone and call my mom and tell her her youngest son had been killed. So that's probably the most trying time in my entire career. I'm I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, when somebody speaks about this, normally it's it's a pretty reserved topic, but you speak about it so openly. I'm assuming that you've shared the story multiple times, uh, possibly to help other people overcome their tragedy as well. Am I am I right in that assumption? Yeah, I think the uh, one the way that you build trust is you expose a little bit of yourself um, to people that you trust, but I also think. Um, I, I always look at my mom and my family as proof that um, we can be in a better place than where we are now. So I've always, even as a young, a young person, thought, always thought in my mind, what would have happened to me had my mom and dad not adopted me at three months old? I would have surely grown up in foster care system and bounced around from home to home, which was is obviously not as good as having a family. And my mom was a pretty amazing person. And, um, you know, I would say she's pretty famous in Oak Park. She did a lot of community service and community work and community building in Oak Park. And so I just think of, you know, of no doing of my own, um, because of what my mom did for me, my life was changed forever at three months old. Um, But, you know, I still witnessed murders. I still grew up in Oak Park where there's prostitution and drug dealing in front of our house every day. My younger brother was still murdered. And so I tell my story because um, I think it shows what can be done when somebody um, gives of themselves and cares for somebody else like my mom did for me and my brothers and sister and many others in the community that she did that for. It just takes one of us to give of ourselves for somebody else and you can change their entire trajectory of their life. And so that's why I tell my story because, um, well, for two reasons, that and because I think it also shows that the people that wear a uniform, wear a blue shirt and a badge and a gun are human beings. And you can't judge um, their entire life just by the, uh, the clothing that they wear when they're at work. Most certainly. And mothers, as I've 
I've had numerous interviews on this podcast. Uh, mothers was a consistent topic that came up. They have such an impact on our lives from the very moment uh, we introduce ourselves to each other, I guess you could say. Uh, so being adopted, you saying that saved you from the, the tragedies of the foster system? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you don't have to look very far to see the prisons, the school, you know, the, um, the graduation rates at schools, the population in prisons. Um, they're disproportionately filled with people in the foster care system. And then the whole challenge of turning 18 in the foster care system and um, aging out of the system. You know, one of the things, you know, fortunately, um, my mom as an adult has not had to like financially help me or those sort of things. But there's something, uh, a lot to be said about, I always knew that my mom was there. So if I ever needed her, I, she was there. She gave me my name. She gave me like the rock uh, to, to center yourself to. Um, she gave me purpose. She gave me um, uh, a legacy and all those sort of things that if you don't have a family, you don't have any of that. And so um, I'm forever grateful for what my mom um, did for me. And um, I think every kid deserves a home and a family and, uh, a, you know, a foundation. So your mom, she was a person really involved in the community and she really loved you and your siblings immensely. That's what I'm getting from that. Uh, is she still with us today? No, unfortunately she passed away about, um, two years ago, but yeah, she, she didn't just do it for us in her core family. She really looked at all of Oak Park as her family. And so, um, that's why I always say she's kind of famous in Oak Park. If you were over 30 or 40 years old, right now, you probably knew her. She always helped. I mean, the house, for example, the house I grew up in is at the corner of 33rd and 2nd Avenue. And she met a family, um, with the last name of Hegstrom in church. And, um, not too long after that, she gave them the house for free. And she called me and my brother up asking if we were okay with her giving our house away or I should say her house away. And of course we both were, we're like, it's your house, mom, you do what you want with it. And we we're kind of used to her giving stuff away by that point. <laughs> um, but they use that house now from time to time when needed to house women escaping sex trafficking. And so, as I mentioned earlier, our corner was back when I was growing up was one of the main strolls in Sacramento for prostitution. And I can still remember as a kid, my mom always having heart for the women that were on the street she didn't have a whole lot for the people that were picking them up, um, but she always, she's one of the few people, because a lot of people would, you know, say, well, those women, you know, are like throwaway women, and, and but she always had a heart for the women that were being abused out on the street. And so now her house is being used to house those women, and that's one of the reasons she gave that house to the family. That house is probably worth eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars now. She gave it away for free. She gave the house she owned across the street to the Habitat for Humanity. Every car that I can ever remember we had, she gave away either to the church or to a family. So, I mean, that's the environment I grew up in. Um, <laughs> I mean, we we weren't broke, we weren't super poor, um, but you probably wouldn't known that by looking at us because she gave everything away and she always gave to others. It was, she was the most selfless person I've ever met. So I, I didn't always appreciate it as a young, uh, kid, but um, it it's what I lived in every single day. 
So you mentioned growing up in Oak Park, there was a lot of prostitution, a lot of violence, a lot of drugs and gangs around and about that area. Uh, it seems to me like the person who really changed the course of your path and quote unquote your destiny was your mom. Uh, so uh, what kept you in this career? Was it your core beliefs and values that she instilled in when you were younger? Is it your own sense of wanting to help others? Yeah, I mean, for sure, my mom saved my life and, and there's no no doubt about that. And I, I think what, well, I know what finally changed my mind to not want to quit the police department when I graduated from Sac State and stay here as a police officer was the fact that I started doing um, really community focused things as a police officer teaching at Grant High School and, and working in Strawberry Manor as a neighborhood police officer. Um, and so doing those things are you know, as a kid, I didn't really value my mom dragging me to community stuff and dragging and making me work in the community and do stuff at the church and all that. I did not appreciate it at all because I always just wanted to be playing with my friends or watching football or playing basketball or foot or football in the middle of the street. Um, but you can't help, but I, apparently it sinks into your brain. And um, so those are the things I really like to do. And when I figured out I could do that as a police officer, uh, slowly but surely, I changed my mind and wanted to stay because as growing up in Oak Park, I didn't know police officers did the things that I've done in my career. I just thought police officers drove around in a black and white squad car and patrolled the streets, looked for people to arrest and gave tickets. That's what I thought police officers did. I had no idea that you could teach in a high school full time as a police officer. I had no idea you could be a neighborhood police officer or any of these other things that I've done in my career. And so once I if I had known that growing up, I don't know, maybe I would have thought more about being a police officer, um, but I didn't know that. So once I figured that out and once I could do the things that, you know, my mom instilled in me growing up, I changed my mind and decided to stay. Um, being promoted to sergeant, lieutenant, captain, and chief were, were, is a whole different story. I kind of got bullied into that by my mentors, but, um, uh, but I'm glad I did it now. But that's why I stayed, because I, I finally figured out what um, all the different things you could do as a police officer that um, were working in the community. That is, that is quite a sentence, bullied by your mentors into achieving greater <laughs> ranks. How's that? Well, uh, you know, just like my mom, uh, you know, as a lot of times as, as we are like your age and younger, we don't, we might outwardly say we can do anything, but inwardly, we're not really confident that we can do all sorts of things. And so my whole life, my mom has believed in me more than I believed in myself. And when I say mentors, there are captains and lieutenants and other officers on this department that were senior to me that I call the OGs that, um, you know, there's always mentors and Paris could, is that way to many people also that the mentor sees more in you than you see in yourself and believes in you more than sometimes you believe in yourself. And so these mentors of mine always harassed me to take promotional tests and said, you know, you'd be a good sergeant, you'd be a good leader, you'd be, and I would always kind of, well, one, I don't want to do that. And two, you know, I, maybe I didn't really believe that they were right, that I could be a good leader. Um, and so when I first took the first sergeant's test, it was really just to get them off my back. Like, I didn't really want to be a sergeant. I just wanted them to quit harassing me. <laughs> but then once I signed up for the test, I also, didn't, 
want my name to be the last, the lowest scoring person on the test. Like my pride kicked in, my competitiveness kicked in. So I studied. And so once I became a sergeant, then I started seeing the world a little differently. I started seeing, well, maybe I do have something to offer. Well, if that person can be a leader, maybe I could be a leader, or maybe I don't really like the way that person leads. And so I've always told young people, if you don't like it, then join it and change it um, uh, and, and fight to do that. Um, so yeah, when I say bully, I, I, I probably was bullied a little bit because they believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And so I think that's the role of a mentor is to, you know, I say to my daughters all the time that there's nothing they can't do. If somebody else can do it, they can do it. And I doubt they believe it all the time, but I believe it as their father. And so as mentors, that's kind of what we have to do is take people where they don't even think they can go until they believe it themselves. Right. Uh, and going back to that that reference, you were you were you were arrested uh, for allegedly assaulting a police officer. Can you tell us more about that? I read about that in your biography at the California State University, uh, but it was very surprising. You're the chief of police, and in your youth, you allegedly assaulted a police officer. <laughs> what's what's going on? Yeah, I, I might be the only police chief in the country that's been arrested. Uh, would be my guess. Um, well, I was 16 years old, and um, I wasn't doing good in a chemistry class at high school. And at the time we had open campus so you could leave campus at lunchtime. And I, I lived like three blocks from the school. So I went home um, because my counselor wouldn't get me out of my class. And my counselor told me that my mom would have to come and get me out of the class because I was flunking chemistry. And of course, at that age, the reason I was flunking was not because of me. It wasn't because I wasn't studying or doing my homework. It was because the teacher didn't like me. And so I needed to get out of that class. And so I went home and I don't know why I thought my mom would get me out of the class because I should have known better and she didn't. And so that led to an argument and I kicked my sister's desk in the kitchen and it broke. And so eventually my mom threatened to call the police if I didn't calm down. And so she did. And I must say after 33 years of uh, being a police officer, it's the fastest the police officers have ever responded anywhere is that day when I was <laughs> Within like a minute, there was a knock at the door that was distinctly a police knock. And uh, the police officer came in the house. Uh, I always say the nice one went in the kitchen with my mom and the not so nice one stayed in the living room with me and yelled at me and cussed at me, told me to get against the wall and um, pushed me against the wall a couple different times uh, as I didn't stand against the wall. And so he was quite a bit shorter than me. And so I said to myself, he's not gonna push me against this wall again. So I started walking to the front door again because I had told him I just wanted to go back to school. And when he went to push me, I just leaned my body weight forward so he couldn't push me against the wall. And so he spun me against the other wall, said I hit him and the other officer came in, they handcuffed me and drug me down the front steps of my house and took me to juvenile hall. So that's how that happened. Uh, so Chifon, you mentioned in your youth in Oak Park, there wasn't a good you know, positive portrayal of law enforcement. Was that your first encounter with a police officer? No, uh, I, I ran from police officers prior to that. Um, what? I remember when I was, yeah, I was coming home from the third grade um, and uh, from David Lubin Annex and I was walking home at Alhambra and Broadway and I, I jaywalked uh, across Alhambra. And my mom was really strict about jaywalking and riding your bike in the street and all those sort of things. So I'm in the third, I don't 
how old are you in the third grade? Like 10 or something like that. So um, I jaywalked and I didn't realize there was a police car parked about a half a block up until I was about halfway across the street and they chirped their siren and said for me to come over to the car. And I was definitely afraid that um, what my mom would do to me if the police department brought me home. So I just took off running. <laughs> and uh, I was faster than the police officer, so I got home before he did, and he didn't know where I lived. So I spent the rest of that day looking out the back window of my house, thinking that the cops were going to show up, and then I was going to get the whooping of my life from my mom. Um, and there was other instances where, you know, we weren't doing anything necessarily wrong. We just didn't want to be on the corner when the police officers got there, so we would run. So I didn't hate the police growing up. Even after I got arrested, I didn't hate the police. I just didn't like the police. So um, I remember there was one time in high school, uh, my friends and I went to the bathroom at McClatchy Park at night and flushed like an M80 down the toilet. Um, we weren't really trying to blow up the sewer system. Uh, we just weren't really thinking and it didn't go off. Um, but when we walked out of the bathroom, there was a police car parked right out in front by the park. So we took off running there too. Luckily, nothing exploded or anything. I hate to imagine what would happen if an explosion happened as a police officer sitting there and five kids come running out of the bathroom. So we did normal. I got brought home by the cops one time for climbing on the roof of a, of a warehouse. Um, uh, so just stuff like that. Um, we didn't commit any serious crimes or anything like that, but we we're just being uh, knucklehead kids. And uh, uh, so other than that, just that kind of stuff with the police. Yeah, yeah, you know, teens are rambunctious, like you were in your youth, adventurous. Uh, so what's an M80? Is yeah. that- oh, yeah. And I forgot that I, my, my, uh, I had interaction with the police also when I saw, when I witnessed the homicide. So when I was about nine or 10, I had just got home from church. My mom was the uh, organist in our church and so I would run home from church to watch the Raiders play on TV before my mom would get home. And it was only my older brother and I were at home and we heard some gunshots. We looked out the window and we watched the guy get shot, I don't know, eight or nine, 10 times. Um, and he clapped, there was a liquor store across the street from the house and he collapsed in the doorway, the car took off. And so I ran across the street and pretty much watched him die in the doorway of the liquor store at about nine or 10 years old. And then uh, over the next two years, eventually they caught somebody. And about two years later, I was in junior high at Kit Carson. And I remember my mom had to come pick me up from school to go testify in court because my brother and I were the only ones that witnessed it. And so um, that was a pretty intimidating feeling. The courtroom looked huge. The attorneys were using big words and um, were very intimidating. Um, and so it's the same courtroom I've testified in as a police officer, but the courtroom looked a lot bigger when I was 12 years old than it does when I'm in my 20s, 30s, and 40s. So that was another time I had interaction with the police. So at any point in your life, did you ever face you know, any type of discrimination as being African-American and a person of color in your actual childhood, interactions with police, as a career, anything like that? Hopefully not, but... Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Many times. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I think a lot of them we just normalize and we don't think. I mean, there was plenty of people that would tell my mom that they need to get me under control. I don't think they probably told other kids that. Um, I've seen, I've been told that um, as police chief, I've been told that the only reason I'm chief is because I'm black. 
Um, there's many instances, both as a police officer and before I was a police officer, that I think were probably based on race, um, whether it's, um, you know, certain words being used towards you. Um, there was, there's been plenty of times when I was younger that somebody would call me the N-word. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's plenty of uh, occasions where I think race played a big role in things. Has that ever, you know, hindered your career and your success? Yeah, I think race has probably hindered my career at at different points. And I only say that because, well, so I left the Sacramento Police Department for a few years, starting in um, 2011. I was sworn in as the police chief in Roseville. That, that I was the first black officer, period, in Roseville ever in 2011. So I, I, I'm not sure that in 2011, a, a police department that's only a couple miles up the freeway had never had a black police officer. And I'm the first black police chief in Sacramento, a department that's been here since 1849. And so, um, you know, that, that I, I imagine race has played somewhat of a, a role in that. But one thing my mom has always taught me is that um, the only thing that can stop you is you. I mean, my mom didn't even have to really tell me that verbally. She just made me think that I could do anything. So anything I put my, anything that I worked hard at, which is what she always harped on me, you just need to work harder. That's why she didn't want to get me out of that chemistry class. She just said I needed to work harder. She basically made me believe that anything I put my mind and my heart to, I could do. So, you know, if it's race or any other things, that's just a hurdle that I need to find a way over, through, or around. Um, and so I, I blame my mom for, you know, if people get frustrated with me because I, 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 I'm hardheaded, well, that's my mom's fault. She made me believe I could do anything I put my head to. So, um, I, I think race still plays a large role in this country and it's part of, it's probably the main reason race and other differences is the main reasons we see the protests we see today. Uh, we see some of, uh, what we see in certain neighborhoods and why neighborhoods are the way they are. I think if you look throughout our history, race plays a big role in that and the um, discrimination, racism, bias um, is deeply rooted in this country and we don't typically address it. So, um, but I also think if you work hard, you can overcome that. Thank you for tuning into the Gen Zero podcast. Be sure to tune in for the next episode.